You're going to love this. Just love it. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe so. Is that Jackass George Zimmerman a uh, a clown or a joker? Hard to know. Hard to know. And yeah, George Zimmerman's in trouble again. Hey, welcome to the broadcast from Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. From 91.7 FM KYAQ on Oregon Central Coast and coast to coast and around the globe. On KPFK.org, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, RadioOrNot.com, and now on Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your Bradcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com here, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me. Uh, not such a swell fellow <clears throat> is uh, George Zimmerman, who, as we go to air today, appears to have been involved in yet another shooting incident down in Florida, down in Lake Mary on Monday afternoon, according to Lake Mary uh, Police Chief Steve Bracknell. Of course, people who don't remember, George Zimmerman was uh, the one who was acquitted after the shooting death of African-American Trayvon Martin back in 2013. Under the uh, premise that he was uh, standing his ground after this uh, youngster attacked him with uh, Skittles and iced tea or whatever nonsense story that George Zimmerman told and was able to get away with because in Florida you can uh, make the claim that you felt threatened. And so long as you kill your assailant, your alleged assailant, there'll be nobody around to uh, say you weren't threatened by him. That's how George Zimmerman got away with it. And since then, he's been involved in one incident after another. The incident today uh, apparently involved uh, two men, is all we know at this time, uh, on Lake Mary Boulevard. According to police officials, officers at the scene said it appeared Zimmerman suffered a minor gunshot wound, Bracknell said. That was uh, police chief Steve Bracknell. He walked normally into the ambulance, so he wasn't being helped or nothing said a witness. In January, Zimmerman was accused of assault by his girlfriend, but no charges were filed after she recanted her allegation, and he was also arrested in November 2013 on domestic violence allegations after his girlfriend called the police, and as I recall, it was a different girlfriend at the time. As I also recall, there was allegations that he punched his girlfriend's father in the face. Other than that, he's a good guy who's just protecting himself against that vicious thug, Trayvon Martin. Uh, yeah, the, the first girlfriend also recant, later recanted her story. Charges were never filed. <laughs> well, he's got a lot of guns, and he knows how to use those guns, too. So if I were his uh, girlfriend, and if I was accusing him of uh, something, I, I guess I might rethink uh, what, a, what I want to accuse that guy of. Oh, anyway, what an idiot. Uh, okay, uh, we're going to talk in a little bit. Uh, had a, a story breaking uh, late last week 
out of North Carolina. Some really good work, an analysis done by uh, a blogger over at Daily Coast looking at the register, the voter registration rates in North Carolina since Republican Governor Pat McCrory took over down there, specifically the registration rates at public assistance offices where under the National Voter Registration Act, uh, every time there's a, 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 a transaction at one of these public uh, assistance offices, food stamps and so forth, driver's licenses, under the national law, the so-called motor voter law of 1993, they are supposed to ask people if they would like to register. Well, they used to do this in North Carolina, according to the numbers from the North Carolina website, uh, anywhere from 30 to uh, 40, 42, 43,000 uh, people per year were registered via public assistance agencies until Pat McCrory came into office in 2013, at which time the numbers absolutely plummeted. So we're going to be talking about that and some action that is now being taken and a suit uh, that looks like uh, may well be filed against the governor in North Carolina, where, not coincidentally, they have also instituted the nation's most uh, worst, absolute worst voter suppression law since the Jim Crow era. We will be talking with the blogger who brought that information to light, who did that analysis in a little bit. But first... Over the weekend, there was a disturbing incident in New York, uh, just about 30 miles or so north of New York City, uh, when there was an explosion at the Indian Point nuclear facility uh, in New York, an explosion at a transformer. Officials say uh, everything's okay, there's nothing to worry about, just as they always do in these matters. Uh, the the uh, explosion caused a fire that was put out, and then I believe it reignited. And then making matters worse, as of Sunday, uh, that transformer uh, that transformer fire created another problem as thousands of gallons of oil began leaking into the Hudson River, according to officials. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said emergency crews were out on the water uh, near Buchanan, New York, trying to contain and clean up transformer fluid that leaked from Indian Point 3. There is no doubt that oil was discharged into the Hudson River, Cuomo said. Exactly how much, we don't know. A spokesman for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said over the weekend that several thousand gallons of oil may have overflowed the transformer moat. The reactor, meantime, was deemed safe and stable, according to the uh, owner of the facility, Entergy. Uh, the uh, plant's adjacent Unit 2 reactor was not affected, remained in operation. That uh, facility supplies electricity for millions of homes, businesses, and public facilities in New York City and Westchester County. Well, that's that's the official word, but I'd like some more details. Uh, for As someone who covered the Fukushima nuclear issue very, very closely at bradblog.com and on this program... One thing that's clear is that officials don't always tell us the truth, whether they're the uh, public officials or the owners of these plants. So to get more information on this, I want to go to uh, Tyson Slocum of Public Citizen. He's the director of Public Citizen's Energy Program. He's an expert on the dangers and pitfalls of nuclear power and other fossil fuels and an advocate for cleaner, more sustainable energy alternatives. Before joining Public Citizen, Tyson was a policy analyst at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Tyson Slocum, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Yeah, always great to be here, Brad. 
Uh, all right. Well, what do we know about the explosion itself? Before we get into the leak uh, business, what do we know about the explosion itself? How and why did it happen? And are you as confident as officials seem to be that uh, the explosion doesn't affect anything on the nuclear side of the Indian Point plant? Yeah, we, we don't know yet what caused the explosion at the transformer. Uh, so the transformer is about 300 feet away from the actual nuclear reactor. And what the purpose of the transformer is, is to knock down the voltage of the electricity coming out of uh, the nuclear power plant before it hits the uh, local transmission lines. And so for, for whatever reason, there was a fire at this uh, transformer. Mm -hmm. It exploded, and a direct result of that explosion caused uh, a leak of oil. Oil is used uh, in the transformer as a lubricant and for other purposes, and we know that, that uh, several thousand gallons of that oil have indeed spilled into uh, the Hudson River. So uh, because the transformer was knocked out, this particular reactor had to be shut down. That's about 1,000 megawatts. There is a second reactor on site uh, that continues to operate and produce electricity. Um, I don't think at this time that, that the fire has threatened the safety or stability of the, the actual nuclear reactor. However, this is just one of a long string of uh, continual problems at this facility. The company that owns Indian Point Energy is based uh, uh, down in Arkansas and Louisiana and Texas. Uh -huh. They've had a number of operational problems with their nuclear power plants, including Vermont Yankee up in uh, Vermont. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there continues to be this chorus uh, from local and state officials in New York to shut down Indian Point. And, and I agree with those calls. I do think that while this incident luckily doesn't appear to put uh, New Yorkers at risk of a, of a nuclear accident, um, when you look at this in context of all of the other incidents and uh, of Entergy's poor track record at yeah. this and other reactors, I, I do think it really requires us to reevaluate um, the continued operation. And I want to point. Yeah, I want to get into some of those details. Uh, the controversy surrounding Indian Point and its renewal now, I think, for twenty years over the objections of the governor. But uh, before we do, I just want to sort of. Uh, close this particular loop. The, this transformer that that blew up. Uh, officials have been stressing that it's on the non-nuclear side of the plant, and as you describe it, uh, it, it takes the energy from the nuclear plant and essentially transforms it so that it feeds into the grid. Um, I hadn't realized when they were talking about it. You know, it's on the other side of the plant, as if it was uh, nowhere near the uh, the the nuclear reactor. Three hundred feet doesn't seem all that far when we're talking about an explosion. Have you been to this facility, Tyson Slocum? Are you, I, I have are you not been to yeah. the facility, but the reports I've received um, do indeed uh, demonstrate that the transformer is between three and 400 feet from the actual reactor. Now, they, they do have some automatic sprinklers, and they, they have an on-site mm -hmm. uh, fire response team that was able to extinguish that fire. But the fact of the matter is this is not something that is a remote transformer. This is not a transformer located far away. This yeah. is a transformer on the site of the nuclear power plant 
like I said, between three hundred and four, three and four hundred feet from the actual reactor. Exactly. So it is, it it is very close. Yeah, that's that's a football field. Is all that is. So, uh, and and I was surprised to hear you say that because that what I've been reading, officials keep you know sort of referring to the non-nuclear side of the plant as if it's somewhere far away. I uh, I, th- I think they're just saying that the explosion didn't occur um, in the actual reactor right. facility. Okay. But there are a number of structures right next to or very close to the reactor facility and this transformer is one of them. And uh, when we get now just to add insult to injury here with this oil spill following this explosion, um uh, the governor, uh, Governor Cuomo, uh, says that a foam-like substance containing animal protein and fat was uh, used to put out the fire, leaving an oily sheen on the water that, he says, does not harm the environment. Uh, do, are, are you as confident that whatever seems to be spilling either into the ground, the groundwater, or the Hudson River is uh, not harming the environment as the government... Well, no, I, I would definitely suggest? disagree. We have confirmation that... Like you said, there are at least several thousand gallons of oil that have indeed spilled into the um, Hudson River. Whether or not um, uh, officials and employees have been able to contain that oil spill, I don't know. But uh, this is not a benign introduction into the Hudson River. This is a uh, polluting oil substance that has been introduced directly into the Hudson River. Now, the environmental group Riverkeeper on Sunday said that this latest uh, problem at Indian Point underscores the fact that the plant should be closed for good. I know it's been controversial for a while. Just so people understand this, Indian Point, uh, this nuclear reactor, and actually I believe there's two uh, at this facility, am I correct? One of them now being shut down while they're dealing with the transformer issue, but uh, and the oil spill issue, but um, this is only this is 25 miles from the Bronx, uh, 35 miles from Times Square. Now, after the Fukushima incident, uh, the U.S. government recommended a, an exclusion zone around that facility in Japan of 50 miles. We're talking about uh, millions of uh, what is it? About 20 million uh, people in the New York metropolitan area that are within that 50-mile exclusion zone. If there was a similar accident to what happened to Fukushima uh, near the Indian Point facility, the complaint has been that there is no real evacuation uh, plan. That you could not possibly evacuate 20 million people. This is one of the reasons. Opponents have been trying to get it shut down now for years, uh, and yet, and over the uh, objections, I should add, of, of Governor Andrew Cuomo, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission approved an extension to this plant for 20 years to continue operating this thing, despite no evacuation plan. How serious a concern is that, and how do we explain the uh, the NRC approving this facility for another 20 years given the given the problems that it could face just on evacuation terms alone yeah i agree that this is a very serious situation that the indian point uh, nuclear facility does not have an adequate um, um, danger response plan that could effectively protect the massive population uh, within the the vicinity of this uh, power plant. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's, that's very upsetting to me is that there is almost unanimous objection to the continued operation of this power plant 
by local and state authorities, and yet the federal government consistently ignores that local input. And that, I think, illustrates the problem of the regulatory oversight over our nuclear power plants, where it is controlled by a, uh, an agency, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that has had a long-standing uh, perception of being very cozy with the nuclear power industry. Sure. And that's why we, a public citizen, believe that there ought to be um, state laws that allow for local and state input into the siting and continued operation of nuclear power facilities. If a local community is united in support of nuclear power, uh, they should be able to express that. When you've got a situation like you have in New York, where local and state officials are almost unanimous in their opposition, yeah. they ought to have an ability to um, have an effective say over the continued operation sure. of our facility. That this is not simply a federal regulatory issue. It is also a state and local regulatory issue. Yeah, I, you know, this is one thing that, that has been bothering me for some time. Uh, and, and certainly there are both Democrats and Republicans who are uh, culpable here as far as uh, supporting not just the nuclear industry, but the fracking industry. But it is the Republicans who seem to tell us for years that, you know, local control is best. State States' rights, local control... But every damn time you see a a, a, a a local body try to ban fracking, try to get rid of a nuclear facility, uh, it, it seems like the Republicans, uh, and again, Republicans and Democrats both do this, but it's Republicans who are talking about small government, local government, they know best. It seems to be that they don't give a damn about local government, about smaller state governments and their, and their rights when it's the local government that's saying, hey, we don't want fracking here. We don't want nuclear right. here. They don't seem to give a damn about that. Well, we, you're raising an excellent point, and, and that is that for a long time we have had this rhetoric, particularly from Republicans, but some Democrats, of get the federal government off our back. We want uh, states and localities that are closer to the people to make key decisions. Yeah. What I find is that rhetoric is overruled when corporate interests are, are uh, in the crosshairs. And, and the, it, it's a perfect example of what you said about fracking, where a very conservative anti-government state like Texas, mm -hmm. where you saw the city of Denton, Texas, which right. is a suburb outside Dallas, pass a ban on fracking. The legislature has passed a bill outlawing the ability of cities to do that. And so that's because of the influence of the oil and gas industry in Texas on the state legislature. So uh, they continue to have this, this rather empty rhetoric of local control um, mm -hmm. unless uh, corporations say that local control is detrimental to corporate interests. Of course, yeah. That, 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 then they overrule it. And that's what we see here with, with Indian Point, where uh, Republicans in Congress will not allow uh, amendments that would give more authority to states to decide 
how long these nuclear power plants continue to operate within their borders. Of course not. And even if they voted on them, like they did in Denton, Texas, I believe, to, to as you mentioned, to, to ban fracking down there, uh, you know, they don't give a damn. They're in favor of states' rights and local control when the state and the locality agree with them. Other than that, they're happy to run roughshod over it, it seems to me. Uh, very quickly, in the minute or two we have left, Tyson Slocum, uh, you had mentioned Vermont uh, Yankee, another facility owned by by Entergy. That was uh, that was shut down, was it not, uh, within the past year or so? Right. They had an agreement to shut it down because of continued uh, operational and, um, uh, and, and accidents that were going on there. You yeah. had leaks of tritium directly into uh, local water sources. Mm. You had officials from Entergy caught lying to state and local officials. <laughs> What's clear is that, you know, what Entergy is found successful in Arkansas and Louisiana, isn't as successful in northeastern states like New York and Vermont, where the company has a very poor reputation of uh, not being forthcoming, not being um, uh, totally upfront with all of the uh, issues going on. So Entergy has uh, uh, some some serious credibility problems uh, when it comes to the operation of its nuclear power fleet. The shutdown of Indian Point, if that were to happen, uh, we're talking about 25 percent of uh, the power, the energy that is sent to some 20 million people there in the New York metropolitan area. Uh, if it was shut down tomorrow or this year or next year, uh, A, how long does it actually take to shut it down? And B, are we able to replace the energy needs of that to 25 percent? That's a lot of energy. We're talking about it 25 percent well, of 20 we, million people. Half of it. Half of it has been shut down since Sunday, and uh, the last time I checked, there hasn't been any power outages <laughs> in the New York City area, and that's because there's enough regional power available. I think what we have to understand is that going forward, nuclear power is not a practical part of the reliability uh, challenges that we face because these older aging plants are simply not reliable enough, and they continue to experience a lot of operational problems. The New York Public Service Commission is is currently undergoing a review of what the future of the electric utility industry ought to look like. And what they're concluding is that the affordability of rooftop solar and other renewables combined with investments in energy efficiency, that's going to be the grid of the future. Uh, locally owned and controlled uh, energy production systems. I think that if New York is serious about being more resilient, more sustainable, and more safe in mm -hmm. terms of its energy production, that renewable energy is the way to go. Nuclear energy may have seemed like a fine uh, upstart technology in the 1950s and 1960s. It was eclipsed long ago by superior competing technologies like wind, solar, and advancements in energy efficiency, it just no longer can compete dollar for dollar. Um, so uh, it's time that we retire these, these old dinosaur mm -hmm. uh, nuclear power plants and focus on where the technology where the innovation is, and that's with renewable energy. As my uh, partner, uh, my producer here and, and co-host of Green News Report, Desi Doyen, likes to say, nuclear energy is the world's most expensive way of boiling water. That's it. Absolutely. And uh, before I let you go, Tyson, um, it has now been four years 
since the meltdowns, I guess, several at the uh, nuclear uh, facilities in Fukushima, Japan. I know there have been many worries, particularly out here on the West Coast, of uh, the contamination that still seems to be pouring into the Pacific Ocean by all accounts and uh, some fear making its way to the U.S. West Coast in the water or the seafood. Do we do we now have four years later, uh, Tyson, any hard data one way or another that might either put folks at ease out here on the West Coast or uh, instill the appropriate uh, concern and, and fear about the issue? Where where is that situation uh, as far as the Fukushima nuclear nuclear uh, facility goes? Well, it's clear that there continues to be uh, radiation contamination of uh, ocean water at the uh, Japanese site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we have seen, there is still wreckage washing up on the U.S. Pacific shore from the, the tsunami damage, piers and, and pieces of buildings and other things. And so we know that the currents are moving um, uh, to the east from Japan Mm -hmm. onto uh, Hawaii and the U.S. West Coast. The question is what levels of radiation are being posed, and and you know why is that still a why is that still a question four years later? Why aren't we? We're not seeing a priority by the Obama administration to study this issue. You have to remember. In the hours after the uh, Japanese nuclear disaster that did result in a, in a full meltdown of, uh, of the reactor there, the Obama administration issued a statement saying everything here in the United States is safe. There is no worries from contamination from the Japanese incident. Um, so they, they issued that statement before any sort of scientific analysis was, was conducted. And so um, I still don't think that I have a high degree of confidence in the information coming out of the government about whether or not the fish that we get from the Pacific Ocean are safe and whether or not communities on the coast, particularly Americans in Hawaii, are, are safe. And so um, I just haven't seen enough dedicated study. And we know that um, there continues to be active uh, highly radioactive leaks into the ocean at that Japanese reactor. Yeah, and I just can't even fathom why there aren't uh, th- those studies, or at least we don't know about those studies. It does make one wonder, you know, if if they were able to prove that, oh, everything is safe, you have nothing to worry about, you would think they would be singing that out loud, but they're not. Tyson, if you lived on the West Coast, would you be eating the seafood out here? Well, the, the, the problem is, is that I eat a lot of seafood, and, you know, I don't know where it's all coming from. That's true. Um, because yeah. we don't have very good food labeling laws in this country. We don't know the origins of a lot of the seafood we eat. So regardless of whether or not I live on mm-hmm. the West or the East Coast, um, the fact of the matter is we all don't necessarily know where our food is coming from, and that's a problem. That's a problem and a conversation, I'm afraid, for another day, the one I will look forward to. Tyson Slocum, the director of Public Citizens Energy Program covering climate change, coal, oil, fracking, nuclear energy, renewables, and commodity market oversight. Tyson, always great to talk to you, always great. You always offer a lot of clarity to us here, so it's greatly appreciated. Hope to talk to you soon, and uh, check out uh, Public Citizen at citizen.org. Org. Thank you, Tyson. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, feel better, Desi Doyen? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, me neither. Uh, that said, and speaking of uh, energy <laughs> energy officials, uh, Governor, Governor Pat uh, McCrory from North Carolina, ever since he came into office, 
Voter registration applications have been plummeting from public assistance offices. And, of course, Pat McCrory, he doesn't even need to get lobbyists into government. He used to be a top official at Duke Energy before becoming governor in North Carolina. We're going to be talking about that situation after we take a quick break here. This is Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, anyone who has listened to this show for uh, years or has read bradblog.com for years knows that we focus not so much on the horse race of elections, but on the track conditions of those uh, of those races. And uh, frankly, sometimes what the horses leave behind. Speaking of what the horses leave behind, back in 2013, when the U.S. Supreme Court gutted uh, the key central section of the Voting Rights Act, it paved the way for radical new voting restrictions around the country, specifically uh, in the states that were run by Republicans. And in this case, the granddaddy of them all, of uh, the granddaddy of all of the uh, worst voting restriction measures that were passed after the Supreme Court gutted the Supreme Court uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act was in North Carolina, the Tar Heel State. Uh, What they passed in uh, July of 2013 was easily the most extreme anti-voter bill that was passed in the nation, and frankly, that has been passed in any state since the Jim Crow era. Back in 2013, we wrote that North Carolina and other states are now freed from the yoke of not being able to discriminate, and they have been on a tear to pass discriminatory laws previously denied under the Voting Rights Act. North Carolina has now done that in a way that no other state has yet even tried, we wrote at the time. They have, in essence, included in uh, in their uh, uh, bill every conceivable, conceivable voter suppression tactic that has ever been dreamed up across uh, over the past decade by the uh, Republican Party across the country. They put everything in there. It's not just photo ID restrictions. It's not just restrictions on early voting. They got everything in there. Uh, at the time, UC uh, Irvine election law professor Rick Hassan described the bill as a nightmare for voting rights advocates. It includes, uh, as I said, the polling place photo ID restrictions, despite any evidence of polling place impersonation in that state. Uh, it shortens the early voting period, eliminates North Carolina's very successful same-day voter registration program. Uh, but, as Rick Hassan noted at the time, it's also a laundry list of ways to make it harder for people to vote and which cannot plausibly be justified on anti-fraud grounds. Uh, this is, you know, for example, I mean, North Carolina was actually quite progressive uh, in their election laws before Pat McCrory took over. Uh, he's the Republican governor that uh, he came in in uh, 2013, I think it was, uh, along with a Republican state house for the first time since uh, Reconstruction, and they just changed everything. They eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. You used to be able, if you were a high school student, you could register, and then by the time you turned 18, you'd already be good to go. You'd already be in the system. They eliminated provisional voting. If someone shows up at the wrong precinct, they uh, prohibit counties from extending poll hours by an hour on Election Day in extraordinary circumstances, such as in response to long lines. 
Uh, Ari Berman at The Nation, who's working on a book about the Voting Rights Act and the fight to vote in this country over the past 50 years, said that the bill eliminates nearly all of the Democratic advances that made North Carolina one of the most progressive southern states when it comes to voting rights and one of the top 15 states in voter turnout nationally, guaranteeing that there will be longer lines at the polls, less voter participation, and much more voter confusion. And indeed, that seems to be what's going on. The uh, trial over this law, which is being uh, challenged uh, at the federal level, uh, that trial won't take place until uh, this summer, summer of, uh, of 2015. You know, and we'll see which of these uh, restrictions, these voter suppression restrictions, we'll see which ones of them stand. But in the meantime, uh, Governor Pat McCrory, his administration does not even seem to be waiting uh, for that trial to happen. They've taken additional measures that don't even show up in that uh, in that voter suppression law. Um, North Carolina Policy Watch, which is a progressive news and commentary uh, outlet, um, Put, uh, put put this out on Friday. A new analysis of voter registration data shows that under the McCrory administration, North Carolina may be systematically failing to provide state residents with the opportunity to register to vote when they apply for public assistance, such as food stamps or welfare, in violation of the National Voter Registration Act. That was passed in 1993. It's otherwise known as the Motor voter law. Every state in the union is supposed to allow uh, a qualified voters to be able to register when they go to get a driver's license or when they go to get some form of public assistance, such as uh, food stamps and so forth. Um, that is that is the law. That is the long established law across the country. Now, I should say that there are a lot of states who don't actually enforce that law, don't enforce it as well as they should. A lot of states have been sued to force them to enforce it, including, by the way, uh, you know, sort of left-leaning liberal uh, states like California, if I'm not mistaken, was actually sued uh, to force them to properly enforce that. Uh, North Carolina had been doing a good job of enforcing the National Voter Registration Act until, apparently, Governor McCrory took, uh, took office in 2013. According to Democracy NC, voter registration applications initiated at public assistance office uh, agencies have dropped dramatically since he took office in 2013. They fell from an average of 38,400 between uh, 2007 and 2012 down to an average of only 16,000 in the past two years. That's a decline of more than 50 percent. Uh, the organization uh, Democracy NC also reports that last fall, it and other voting rights groups checked out 19 public assistance agencies across the state, found that after interviews, uh, up to 75% of the clients at the agencies did not see any registration question on agency forms. They were not asked whether they would like to register to vote as required by federal law. Well, now a new analysis by uh, a, a blogger who is uh, calling himself only Doc Dog right now uh, for uh, reasons. Uh, someone who uh, lives in North Carolina does not want to make this about uh, him, and that's understandable. Uh, but he has uh, done an analysis of the actual numbers that are published by the state of Carolina, North Carolina, to see exactly how uh, how things have changed under the McCrory administration and how it seems 
that there is a systematic effort coming from somewhere, directed by somewhere, uh, to stop registering people when they show up to uh, to get public assistance or at the driver's license office and so forth. Um, the author of this analysis, Doc Dog, is a semi-retired biotechnology entrepreneur and self self-styled recovering academic. He's also a lifelong progressive Democrat and a forever grateful adopted son of the Tar Heel State, he tells me. And he has filed his analysis uh, late last week at Daily Coast, and uh, and it's pretty extraordinary and pretty well documented. Doc Dog joins us now to talk about that analysis. Uh, hey, Dog, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks very much, Brad. Really gl- glad to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Um, okay, you did a, a terrific job laying out exactly what it was that you found. Uh, you sort of put it in, in three steps, three findings. Let's walk through those three findings very quickly so people can understand uh, what the data appear to show is actually going on in uh, in North Carolina. Uh, let's let's go first to uh, finding one. Uh, uh, what did you find when you looked at uh, voter registrations originating from the public assistant uh, assistance offices? Sure. Uh, let me first say that North Carolina, thanks to its uh, democratic heritage, we've we've only been a Republican state since uh, the 2010 elections mm-hmm. when young and middle aged Democrats. I guess had to wash their hair instead of going to the polls, and we ended up with a Republican supermajority in the state house. But uh, thanks to its democratic heritage, uh, North Carolina has really great online voter registration data. You can look up the name of any person in the state, find out their voter registration status. Also, amazingly enough, their their address, their sex, their race, what primaries they have and have not voted in, their party affiliation, things of that nature. Plus, the state board of elections uh, publishes a lot of background data that it that it uh, accumulates, particularly with regard to uh, uh, compliance with the National Voter Registration Act of 1993, the mm-hmm. the act you alluded to that requires. Uh, public assistance offices mm-hmm. and DMV offices, not only to make it possible for citizens to register to vote there, but as well, they're supposed to actually ask you, would you like to register to vote today? Right. And if you say yes, they're supposed to hand you a card. So they publish data on how many people have registered to vote via the DMV, via public assistance offices, via organizations that uh, provide services to the disabled. And those data apparently just sit on the um, State Board of Elections FDP server, and nobody ever really opens them up and looks at them. My, my colleagues and I were, were curious to do sort of an independent analysis of how well North Carolina has been doing with uh, compliance with the Voter Registration Act. Mm-hmm. So we did open up those files, um, database the information. It's, gosh, it's about 300,000 rows of data, so it, it takes a fair amount of time to wade through. Right. And what we found that was that in month one of the McCrory administration, <laughs> the, the basically the, the day McCrory sat down in his big leather chair in mm-hmm. the state house, uh, monthly voter registrations via public assistance offices, which had previously averaged 2,187 per month, uh, dropped to a low of 736 per month. That's a 66% decrease in voting uh, voter registrations via public assistance offices. We compared and contrasted that with the number of voter registrations coming from the DMV. Those were down a little bit, but 
hardly worth mentioning. And, and when you do statistical tests, you found that the, the decline in DMV originating reg- registrations was not statistically significant. Mm-hmm. The decline in public assistance originating registrations was extremely significant um, at, by yeah. scientific standards. And I happen to be a scientist, so I can, I can say that. When you take the, the monthly differential, the average differential between the pre-McCrory era and the McCrory administration in how many voters were not registered via public assistance mm-hmm. in the McCrory administration. That's one, almost 1,500 voters per month were not registered in the McCrory administration who would have been registered in previous administrations, according to the data. Multiply that by the number of months in the McCrory administration so far, and you find that there's almost 40,000 poverty-level voters missing from the rolls today because of something that's going on in the so- McCrory administration that has the effect of discouraging uh, poverty-level citizens from registering to vote. So we're talking, yeah, we're talking about forty thousand voters who would seemingly have otherwise been registered to vote uh, had not something changed when McCrory took office. And I don't know that we know yet what exactly has changed. If if an instruction has gone out to these offices to uh, to stop uh, offering these registrations uh, to people uh, on public assistance and you're right I'm looking at your data here and uh, the change it dropped off a very little in the uh, in the DMV offices but there was a huge drop it went over a cliff in the public assistance offices the welfare offices yeah. the food stamp offices and so forth um, okay so uh, that if was if I may yeah, just very yeah. briefly to put that 40,000 missing voters number in perspective mm-hmm. Uh, in 2014, of course, we had a, an election, and uh, our U.S. Senator, Democratic U.S. Senator Kay Hagan, was uh, turned out of office in favor of our new junior Republican U.S. Senator Tom Tillis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won by 45,000 votes. <laughs> so those 40,000 missing votes are a big deal in a state the size of North Carolina. That does ring a bell, doesn't it? And it was, I should know, Tom Tillis, who was the uh, Speaker of the House, uh, was he not, in uh, North Carolina? Before he Mm -hmm. became uh, a U.S. Senator, it was Tom Tillis who rammed through the uh, the worst voter suppression law since uh, Jim Crow, as I described it at the top. Yeah, <laughs> just a coincidence at the top of this segment. So, uh, yeah, so this forty thousand is notable, and it is even more notable, Doc Dog, because uh, with this new law in place, uh, you used to be able, you know, if someone wanted to show up and uh, register and vote on the same day on election day, they could do that in North Carolina. So. Had there been that kind of a drop-off, at least people would have been able to vote uh, on Election Day. Now, if they don't register in time, that's it. They're out uh, unless this law you know, that is being challenged by the federal government under the Voting Rights Act, unless that law goes down, uh, if these folks don't register in advance, they don't get to vote. So, okay, moving forward then to your next finding, uh, Doc Dog, you look at this and you say, well, maybe, uh, maybe there are fewer people. Uh, 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 who are who are applying for public assistance now as the economy has gotten better in those uh, in the years uh, 2013 when uh, uh, McCrory came to office, the economy nationally has begun to improve. So maybe there's just not as many people applying for public assistance. And that explains why there is such a drop off in registrations at the public assistance offices. Yeah. And, you know, as a as a scientist by training and profession, it's my 
habit of thought to test alternative explanations mm-hmm. for any data set. So we spent some time thinking about, okay, what are the, what are the potentially benign reasons why, why we might have seen this, uh, this drop-off? Let's not just assume that this is some kind of a uh, McCrory policy. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, first we asked, well, the economy has been improving over the last two years of the McCrory administration. Uh, perhaps people just aren't showing up at the numbers that they used to show up at in, in public assistance offices. So what we did, uh, there's also uh, information available online from the uh, North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services with regard to how many assistance, public assistance applications they process per month. And what we focused on were the, was the, the single program that generates the most of those applications for public assistance, and that's the Food and Nutrition Services Program. That's uh, WIC, that's mm-hmm. Food Stamps, that's a variety of other programs for, for getting people food. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we found was when we, vo- when we scaled the voter registration data from public assistance uh, and expressed it as a percentage of the total number of food and nutrition service applications that had been submitted in those months, we found that that same difference between the pre-McCrory era and the McCrory average remained that uh, that registrations as a percent of public assistance applications were still down um, more than 60% below the Jeez. pre-McCrory era. So, so do, the, let me, falling let, off the cliff, as you say, remained even after we scaled the data. Yeah, and, and so let me just sort of restate that for non-scientists here, uh, like myself. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you, you did a good job. I just want to underscore it. because you're, So you're saying that, indeed, uh, applications were down uh, as the inco- economy appro- improved. Down a little bit, yeah. Down a little bit, but the percentage of the people going to get it, uh, you'd expect it to remain the same. The, the percentage of people actually uh, registering to vote when they went and did this particular process, applying for uh, food stamps and so forth. And yet, we didn't see that. What we saw is... The very beginning, right as soon as uh, uh, McCrory came into office, boom, it falls over a cliff. It seems they stop offering uh, registrations to people going in to apply for these services. That's correct. Yeah. And then uh, finally, uh, and, and again, thank you, because you've laid this out so uh, cleanly and, and easy to understand over at your uh, piece at, uh, at Daily Coast. Finally, you said, OK, well, maybe there's some bad apples. Maybe it's just one or two or or a number of the states. Uh, what is it? Fifty five different offices. Uh, one hundred. Yeah. One hundred county offices. Maybe it's just a few a few bad apples. Uh, and, and they're all of a sudden not offering registration as they should. So you decided to look across the board at all 100 counties to see if there was uh, someone we could uh, locate who was who was uh, not not following the law here. What did you find when you looked across each and every uh, of the 100 uh, county services? What we found was that 99 out of 100 count of the, out of the 100 counties in North Carolina all showed this dramatic decline in voter registration via public assistance offices. One county, a uh, little tiny, I don't even know how to pronounce its name, Perquimans County. Um, it's a very low population county, showed no change. The other 99 counties in, in the state, their public assistance offices all showed drops ranging generally from 40% pre-McCrory to McCrory period, 
uh, up to 100%. Uh, they just stopped <laughs> generating voter registrations altogether. So the, the take-home from that is that, no, this wasn't just a couple of bad actors, managers at uh, county-level uh, public assistance offices who decided to do this. This begins to look a lot like a statewide policy orchestrated at the McCrory administration level. This is an amazing analysis, Doc Dog. I guess uh, maybe we need to talk to the... Uh to the county that we, we don't even know how to pronounce, Perquimus, and ask them uh, if they know anything, if they have any explanation for why it is that the other 99 uh, offices just dove. And you've got this fantastic graph that shows 40, 60, 80, and in some cases 100% drop-off. Uh, and only this one, uh, uh, t- actually Union County also looks like it, it had a drop-off, but it doesn't look uh, statistically significant. Um, and again, that's another yeah. very low population rural county. I got gotcha. you. Uh, just amazing. Uh, fantastic analysis. Have you had, uh, you and, and the folks you've been working with on this, have you had a chance to seek comment from uh, Governor McCrory's office at this point to see if there's any explanation for these numbers? Um, that's going to be, I haven't done it myself mm-hmm. because I figured why bother. That's going to be addressed by um several voting rights organizations and the NAACP. Those organizations and that small army of attorneys are going to ask McCrory, hey, what's up? (laughs) Explain yourself. Yeah. This story will continue. Uh, Great work here, Doc Dog. Uh, Really appreciate that. I I understand why you don't want to use your real name, and I wanted to respect that, but I I do want to let folks know they can find your analysis, and frankly a startling analysis, uh, as published last Thursday at Daily Coast, breaking Board of Elections data reveal voter registration irregularities under North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory. Uh, great job here, Doc Dog. Please stay in touch as this moves forward and really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, I've got a little bit more on this story, but we're running late, so we're going to take a quick break and come right back with that and more on Baltimore. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. All right. No one could be sweet. Welcome back to the broadcast. Running a little bit late here, just a few minutes, but I wanted to hit uh, a, a couple of new developments since that uh, analysis by Doc Dog. Uh, a number of civil rights organizations have now filed uh, a complaint, an official complaint with the state of North Carolina. Uh, They filed a follow-up letter, uh, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, Demos, Project Vote, Southern Coalition for Social Justice. They filed an official complaint under the National Voter Registration Act, which now gives the state 90 days to respond, to explain what the hell is going on, to explain this this crazy drop-off of uh, voter registration submitted by public assistance agencies. And, and it really is. I'm, I'm looking at the just the hard numbers here from the North Carolina State Board of Elections. You know, year after year between t- 2007 and 2012, there was, you know, 33,000, 42,000, 33, 36, 42,000, 41,000 voter registration applications submitted by public assistance agencies. And then it goes over the cliff. 18,000 in 2013 after McCrory came to office. 13,000 in 2014. 
So something's going on there, and I'm not sure what the uh, what the explanation is. I have um, we sought a comment from the state board of elections to uh, see if they had any explanation for this. So far, they have not gotten back to us. Uh, poking around a bit further <clears throat> with uh, North Carolina sources, uh, there's a possibility. There is one explanation here that that has uh, come to light that maybe we'll see if the state cites this. There's been a lot of privatization of state services in the last few years. Uh, a lot of public assistance has now been moved to the net, to the Internet. So a lot of people are no longer dealing with live people at public offices. And the uh, although they still have to be asked if they want to register during any transaction with these public assistance offices. So even if they're online, they need to be asked if they need to register to vote. That question, I'm told has been moved to the bottom of some of these online forms. People may not uh, see that question at the end, or they're likely to ignore it at the end. Uh, that could be one explanation. Uh, but, you know, in fact, the people who have been interviewed, th those uh, four organizations that filed the complaint have interviewed some 196 Department of uh, Health and Human Services clients uh, three quarters of the interviewees received no offer of voter registration of any kind. Uh, 146 of those uh, clients did not see a voter registration question on their forms. They were not verbally asked. So uh, the numbers are pretty overwhelming against the state. The state of North Carolina needs to come up with some explanation for why they appear to be violating this uh, National Voter Registration Act. That's a federal law, and within 90 days, if they don't have an explanation, uh, a lawsuit, I suspect, will be filed there. We will keep our eyes on that. All right, as we are running late here, just, uh, just time for one more story. This out of Baltimore in the wake of the Freddie Gray uh, incident, the Freddie Gray killing, alleged uh, homicide, since the charges have now been uh, filed out there. Uh, the Baltimore Sun reported over the weekend that thousands of people have been brought to Baltimore City Jail in recent years with injuries too severe for them to be admitted, according to newly released records. When Baltimore State's attorney Marilyn Mosby charged six police officers in the death of Freddie Gray, she said that they had ignored Gray's plea for medical care during his arrest and a 45-minute transport van ride which we believe was a rough ride, and uh, that is where his, uh, his, his voice box was uh, crushed and his spine was severed, and then he ultimately died several days later. Records obtained by the Baltimore Sun show that city police often disregard or are oblivious to injuries and illnesses among people they apprehend. In fact, such cases occur by the thousands, says the Sun. From June 2012 through April 2015, correctional officers at the Baltimore City Detention Center have refused to admit nearly 2,600 detainees who were in police custody, according to state records obtained through uh, Public Information Act requests in Maryland. So they were bringing in thousands of arrestees in need of medical care, and instead of giving them medical care, they were trying to throw them in the jail, and the jail was saying, no, we ain't going to take them. you got to get, get some medical care. It's just amazing. Uh, the uh, attorney... Dwight Pettit, who has sued dozens of city officers in the past 40 years, said it goes to demonstrate the callous indifference the officers show when they are involved with the public. Why would they render medical care when they rendered many of the injuries on the very same people they're bringing in? 
Criminologists and law enforcement experts say Gray's death shows that police lack adequate training to detect injuries. Oh, do you think? On Friday, the uh, U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced a broad civil rights investigation into the Baltimore Police Department, a move designed to address the, quote, serious erosion of public trust. Serious erosion indeed. Maybe, just maybe, something good will come of Freddie Gray's death, uh, both in Baltimore and in the rest of the country, as a light is finally being uh, shined on uh, just what is going on among our uh, police departments across the country. Man. All right, uh, got to get out here. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and, of course, to my guests today, Tyson Slocum of Public Citizen. Check him out at citizen.org. And, of course, Doc Dog from Daily Coast. We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel, tomorrow. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Would love to hear from you. And, of course, at bradblog.com. Good luck, world.